0: Will you join me, if you're able, in standing for the reading of today's scripture, which comes from Colossians 2, 13 through 3, 4. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Hey, good morning, sojourner family. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Pastor Mo. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new to Sojourn, either online or in person, Welcome. Happy New Year's as well. Uh, They tasked me with kicking off the first sermon of the new year. So no pressure, right? You guys pray for me. I'm just kidding. Um, But over the years, I found myself in some very interesting conversations, either about the gospel, about Bible, about Jesus. And I remember one specific interaction I had with someone was back in 2018, before I actually came on staff here at Sojourn. I was reading my Bible on a lunch break, uh, walking through the book of Galatians, one of my co-workers walked up to me, and this co-worker said, see, you like the Bible? I said, I do. Uh, and they asked me what book I was reading. I said, I'm reading the book of Galatians. This co-worker of mine said, man, I love the Word. I love Paul as well. He is my favorite. So in my mind, I'm thinking, man, we have some like-minded people uh, in this place. Like This is a, this is a great place to be, a great place to work. But I quickly realized that though we were talking about the same Bible and even using the same Bible translation, we arrive at two completely different conclusions on how it is that someone could come into a relationship with God. Now, to be more specific, uh, my coworker was convinced that in order for you to be a child of God, you have to demonstrate your faithfulness. You have to demonstrate your faithfulness through um, Jewish kosher laws. You have to demonstrate your faithfulness to God by observing the seven holidays, the Jewish holidays in the Old Testament. You have to observe the Sabbath. Sunday worship was forbidden. These are the things that would prove that you are a true worshiper of God. And kind of weaving through the conversations, one of the questions that I directly asked my coworker, I said, how can a man be forgiven of their sin? They sat there, pause. They looked at me. They said, by observing the feast. My heart broke a little bit inside. Their response was void of Jesus or anything about Jesus, even though the feasts are clearly labeled here in the Old Testament. Forgot they missed what it was pointing to. I pressed in, share the gospel on the centrality of Jesus, what he has done, what he has accomplished, how we are forgiven, how we were redeemed, and how we are adopted and granted to be sons and daughters through faith. See, they believe that Jesus, Jesus was important. He just wasn't enough. More was left to be up to you in order to come into a relationship with God. You know, I'll share a snippet of that. It was, it was a long conversation. We've met for weeks to kind of dive in and press through a text. Uh, but I'll share a snippet of that just to show you distortions of the gospel. They're not something that's uh, overseas. They're all around. They're here and they're near where people are trying to justify themselves. People are trying to figure out a way that they can draw near to God. Shapes and hats, it changes. It looks different over a year. But at the core of it, people are trying to figure out and scratch and claw their way to show God that they belong. You know, as believers in Jesus, we would do well to center ourselves on the truth and the bedrock of the gospel message. Everything this year, just like last year and a year before and a year after that, is vying for your attention. Everything is pulling for your allegiance. Come this way, come that way. And my hope for us, especially on this first Sunday of the year, is that as a body of believers, we will be firm and rooted on a solid rock and a solid foundation of Christ, deeply abiding in him, being built up and bearing fruit in every which way. And this is Paul's aim for the church in Colossae that Lindsay just read for us. See, Paul knows that to abandon the gospel, to either swerve to the right or to swerve to the left of the gospel is to abandon Jesus altogether. It's not a small matter. You know, this morning we get a chance to walk through this text, um, pretty much all of chapter two, and we get a chance to open up Paul's letter and we get to check out his heart. Paul, what is your heart? For these, for these Colossian believers who are being pulled every which way. How do you address this situation of the Colossians that's facing their very own distortions? And we get the journey tracked track through that. And if you're taking notes with me this morning, we're going to unpack this text that she read for us under three separate headings. First, we'll look at the past, hope in remembering what, God is, what Christ has done, the present, standing firm in hope and freedom, and the future, The hope of glory to come. Before we press in, let's take it to the Father in prayer. Lord God, I thank you that you have not left the way to you up to our own determination. Lord, that your word isn't gray, it isn't fuzzy, it is clear, and it is very specific. So I pray that uh, we would know this specific message as believers, that we would not be tossed to and fro, that we would be able to stand on a solid foundation. So Lord, use me in a short amount of time and may your spirit be at work amongst our people. In Jesus name I pray, amen. Now, uh, a a little bit of background to help us kind of unpack this text when we think about the context of Colossians. Uh, So Paul is writing this letter while he's arrested, while he's physically in chains, possibly arrested while he's in Rome as a result of faithfully preaching the gospel. And Colossians is pretty unique in a sense of Paul is penning this letter to a body of believers he's never laid his eyes on. He's never met these believers. These believers have never met him. See, in fact, the gospel came to him, came to the Colossians by a a man by the name of Epaphras. He himself was a likely convert of Jesus through the preaching and a proclamation of the gospel through Paul, one of his missionary journeys. You see, he ministered, Epaphras, he ministered alongside Paul in his inner circle, and he eventually went back to his hometown in Colossae and started preaching a gospel that he was saved through. Disciples started to become formed and believers started to grow. And in Epaphras' report back to Paul, he is recounting all that God has done. He is showing how God has been faithful. He is showing the faithfulness of the believers there, but also Paul is informed of false teaching that is threatening the church, that's impacting the church. See, these false teachers were teaching that there is another way to truly experience the presence of God apart from abiding and standing firm in Jesus, which we'll soon unpack. And it's against that backdrop while Paul's arrested, under house arrest, that he picks up his letter and he writes to these believers to encourage them, to exhort them that they should hold fast to the truth of the gospel that they believe in Stand firm and not shift from the hope that they have in the gospel. And that brings us to our first point, the past, remembering what Christ has done. So in Paul's attempt to get these Colossian believers to stand firm, he reminds them of what has already happened. You see, these, these, these false teachers are attacking the gospel by saying, no, here's another way. Paul says, no, 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 stand firm. You lack nothing. There's no lapse in your faith or your relationship with God. Look with me again in verses 13 through 15 as Paul summarizes and he reminds them of the gospel. Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He has forgiven all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. What did God do with it? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Paul's typical launching point when he is recounting and remembering the gospel that has been proclaimed to his believers is he starts with who they were before they were in Christ. And this is also true for you and I. Before we were in Christ, we weren't at a neutral playing field. We weren't somewhere in the middle. We were dead in our sins. See, Paul relates being dead in our sins to the uncircumcision of our flesh. You see, circumcision at its core is the removal of a body of flesh. So before Christ, we were spiritually dead in our sins and under the power and under the control of our flesh unable to break free from our desires and even unwilling because of our uncircumcised hearts. And it was at this time that we were spiritually dead that God did something for us. It was at this time that we were hostile to God, that he made us alive and united us with Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that God has done something for these Colossians subsequently through us that we we're unable to do for ourselves he is saying that there were legitimate charges on their record. There was a debt that they were responsible to before God because of their sin. And he says that this this debt, this record, this receipt, it would have justly led to their condemnation. It would have justly led to them paying for that. Notice Paul does not say that you shook loose of this debt, that your behavior, that your obedience led to this debt being removed from you. Central focus is on what God has done and what God has done through Christ. Debt, it's a funny thing. You know, I remember going to college with my first debit card, Bank of America, back in the day for me. Um, some of you guys still have it, no shots. Um, but with this debit card, I remember overdrafting and logging into my Bank of America uh, app. And what I saw was my ledger. It was in red and it was negative, And I saw a fee and my heart dropped. I'm already broke, that's why I'm, that's why I'm in a ledger to begin with. Uh, but at that moment, I knew that I was incapable of paying that fee and even bringing my ledger back up. And I recognized and I understood that I was at the mercy of someone else to cover that debt. Usually I would call up my mom and my dad, plead my case, how I made a mistake, how it never happened again, and they would relinquish and, and take care of that. God isn't like that. God isn't, God isn't reluctant. He doesn't just bring our ledger back really up to, or a little bit over positive so we're no longer in debt. It's like, no, no, no. God has done something magnificent and God has done something beautiful with that. You see, since you are in Christ, God has nailed that debt to the cross. And if you ever struggle to wrestle and believe and hold fast that God's love and God's mercy Uh, is for you and his kindness is towards you. Do you ever wrestle with that? If I could be honest, uh, I know my record of debt and it is long. I didn't come to faith until I was much later in my life after college. And sometimes I struggle because I'm very aware of the things of my past. But something that's helpful for me and I hope it'll be helpful to you is to start to encourage yourselves to look more at what God has done in Christ for you than your receipt, than your ledger of things that you've done in your own past. So you understand that <clears throat> even, the, even the secret sins in your life, even the things that you struggle to even utter words because they hurt too bad, because it's too sharp. God says, I see it. I'm aware of it. And I've taken that thing, and I have known that to my son's cross as well see it. I've done something with it. Even the things that your spouse may not know about you, your friends have never heard about you, God knows. And he still invites. And he says, I've made a way for that to be forgiven. And what's the result of, Christ, of God nailing our debt and our sins to Christ's cross? <clears throat> Paul says, the spiritual powers of hell were disarmed and made a public spectacle of. Roman victory language doesn't quite cross our culture. But in Roman victory, whenever you have a, a, a victor that had won in battle, what they would do is they would parade their fallen or conquered enemies publicly throughout the streets, dragging them along, disarmed and helpless to shame them. And God is saying, in a God is saying, in a cross. You know what I did to Satan and his hosts? I publicly shame them. I disarm them, and I drug them through publicly. Colossians don't have to move to the left or the right because what Christ has done, God says, I have taken care of it. You know, when I when I when I looked and I've been studying this week on. <clears throat> disarming rulers and authorities, there's many implications of like, what does it mean that Satan and his hosts were, were disarmed? One thing that, I, that stood out to me that I want to just bring to our attention as part of disarming, because of Christ and because of our union with Christ and being united with Christ, we are declared holy, without blemish, and we're free from accusation. Look with me in chapter 1, verses starting at verse 21. Paul recounts the gospel as well with a slightly different shift. Starts at the beginning once again. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But he says, but now he has reconciled you by, cross, by Christ's physical body through death. To do what? To present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Say those three words again. What God has done in Christ... Was able to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, says, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope of the gospel. He's saying, Stay put, stay firm. This is what Christ has done for you. Don't move to the left, don't move to the right from it. Paul says, This is the gospel. You're ever fuzzy or gray like, Paul, what, what gospel did you preach? He tells you. He says, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, has become a servant. You see, Satan is accuser, Satan is a slander, and his aim is to keep people blinded from the glory of Jesus so that he can launch an accusation against them. Satan loves to be able to accuse you of your sin. But brothers and sisters, the beautiful and the good news is when you grasp this truth and when you hold on to it and you recognize that there is no longer a record that is attached to you, that's where freedom begins. That's where freedom begins because you don't have to shift left or right or be wishy-washy of what does God think about me? Is he pleased with me? Does he really love me? they've been nailed to the cross. You see, in Christ, you and I are no longer who we once were, and we don't have to hide to cover those things. Remember, if before God our accusations and our sins have been removed, there is no accusation that Satan can launch to you that will stick. They don't stick. So even though it may feel fearful to think about some of the things that we have done or we are doing, Before Christ, we are presented holy, without blemish, without spot. Satan is disarmed to accuse you before the Father. What would it look like for us to walk in that truth, to walk in that reality, to be able to have conversations with one another and to be honest where we are, to be honest with where we're struggling, to be honest with what we did, because when we recognize that we are free from accusations before the Father, that should allow us on a horizontal level to live out that freedom. That Satan is disarmed and we are no longer accused. Paul is saying, Colossians, remember that. Remember the beautiful thing that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That leads us to our second point. The present standing firm in freedom. See, Paul transitions his focus and he continues to, to flesh and to flush out his main argument, and look with me at verses 16 and 17. He says, "Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. You know, solid biblical interpretation would ask you, whenever you see therefore, to ask the question, what is it therefore? What is that therefore, therefore? What is it trying to communicate? Paul is linking his previous argument of what Christ has done for us, what God has done in the heavenlies, as means and as justification, why we should no longer submit to human rules. Why we should no longer be disqualified by these false teachers and what they're trying to persuade the Colossians to do. You see, in Paul, in, in um, in Colossae, a lot of these, a lot of these false teaching. What they're trying to do is they're trying to they're trying to syncretize some Old Testament laws and some Old Testament beliefs to pagan rituals. A lot of a lot of commentators are a little bit a little bit fuzzy and gray on what the exact nature of the false teaching is at Colossae, but we're able to kind of build a case looking back, seeing Paul's response and how he is dealing and how he is drawing in there. You see, part of um, what, what scholars are able to recognize in Colossae and nearby is a lot of uh, false deities in the area, what people would do is they would practice what's called asceticism. It's like a harsh treatment of the body. It could be a severe uh, form of fasting, it could be self-harm. But what they would do is they would inflict uh, pain upon their body so that they would have a vision to be able to enter, enter the inner sanctuary of whatever false deities they were worshiping. In two twenty-one, Paul instructs the Colossians. He says, "Do not submit to these regulations." He says, "Do not submit to things such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch." He says, "Do not come under the yoke of that." See, these are old; these are uh, regulations in the Old Testament law that were related for the Jews to be considered ceremonially clean, so that they can approach God through His tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, as they're in the wilderness or through the temple. Paul has just explained that they already reconciled to God. They already accepted. They already count holy and blameless. Paul saying, how foolish would it be to go backwards in God's plan of redemptive history? How foolish it is to go back in light of what God has already done. You see, the law pointed forward. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment and its ultimate culmination in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. The law says something is coming. During Jesus' earthly ministry, I remember he rebuked just the religious leaders that are putting their hope in Moses. They're putting their hope in the law that that's where they go to find life through their obedience and through their adherence to the Old Testament law. And in John 5, Jesus says, look, you pour over these scriptures because you think that in them you find life. Jesus says, these scriptures, this law, it points to me, but you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. You see, it's it's like finally having that meal of your dreams that you've always wanted, that you always dreamed about. It's finally on a platter and it's finally in front of you. And you step back and you say, you know what? I'd rather just have the menu. I'd rather just read about those ingredients. See, the natural condition of the human heart for you and for I is to try to prove and demonstrate and show our worthiness to God in hopes that he will accept it. Paul says that you are complete. You lack nothing. In chapter 1, verse 19, Paul writes about Jesus when he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is Old Testament imagery of God's fullness dwelling his temple. See, God dwelt with his his people in a tabernacle and in a temple, but even those were merely a pointing forward to the fullest expression of God's end-time presence amongst his people. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is a fullness of God that dwells with us. Chapter 2, verse 9, Paul wrote, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you are complete. In Christ, you are not lacking. You need nothing else. Jesus at the right hand of God. He's our our advocate before the Father. He is more than enough. And a fatal flaw of these teachers and any teacher that distorts the truth of the gospel It's found in verse 19, Paul said, they have lost connection with the head. He's saying these false teachers have lost connection with Christ. You see, any notion that seeks to remove Jesus from his preeminent position and exalt what you need to do on your end, on your behalf to be in a relationship with God has completely missed it. Even if it has Bible verses sprinkled in it, it's a gospel that cannot say, It's a gospel that cannot save. No matter how how devout, how sincere a person may be, if they're not trusting in the sufficiency of what God has done in Christ, they're holding on to a different hope. They're holding on to a false hope that may look good, that may have verses attached to it, but it's not God's plan of redemption. It's a hope that cannot save. See, people are united with Christ, they're one in union with Christ on a basis of of hearing the gospel and responding in faith. Responding in faith. Hear how Paul writes about it in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 13, he says, and you also were included in Christ. When? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He says, when you believe, you are marked in him with a seal. God has marked you when you have believed the truth of the gospel, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You want to know when you were included with Christ? Wasn't that your baptism? Wasn't what became a member? Wasn't because you joined a community group? It's because you heard the gospel, and it's because you responded in faith. No matter how you feel, God says, my evidence is my spirit that has been placed on you on the basis of faith. God says, you are mine, and I'm giving you evidence of a future inheritance that is yours based upon the faith. So Colossians, where else do you need to go? Where else do you need to go? They could stand firm on the gospel that they've received from Epaphras because Epaphras has heard this gospel from Paul, the apostle himself. Nowhere else you need to go. And lastly, let's look at the future, the hope of glory. See, following following Paul's line of argumentation, he's reminded the Colossians of what God has already done in Christ Jesus, how they can now stand firm and free apart from human regulations that look good, but have no effect and no power. And now he says how they ought to live out their identity from being united and being in union with Christ. You see, this is where true life is found, is being united with Christ. This is where hope, this is where joy is found. You see, being in Christ isn't a reason for us to continuously live in the old patterns of our old ways and say, whoa, well, Christ died for that. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a law for us to, to, to be comfortable in our sins, You see, Paul says we are to set our minds above, set our minds on heavenly things. We don't have to try to uh, combine Old Testament laws with asceticism and try to have some type of heavenly temple vision. We're already complete in Christ. If you want to set our minds above, we set it on the object and the perfecter of our faith above, which is Christ. We don't go around him. We don't go to the right or sort of left but we go deeper and deeper in him. We are told, to, uh, we're told that our lives are hidden with Christ. So you know that uh, when you're united with Christ, you are no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to another. You don't belong to a political party. You don't belong to an ideology. You belong to a king. And that is your primary citizenship, brothers and sisters. That is your citizenship. And since we're united with Christ, we're not, only, we're not only connected through his death, but also his resurrection. Since Christ has died, we have died to ourselves. We are died to our sins. But also, since he has been risen, we are risen to newness of life. To newness of life. We are no longer our old selves. Our old selves are no longer the master in our lives, and our old selves no longer have the final say-so. We don't have to jump when our flesh tells us to leap. We are circumcised in Christ. We have a circumcision that is not done by human hands. Our union being united with Christ We are no longer under the control and the power and the dominion of our flesh that we once were. That body of flesh has been removed and we are free to hold on to a new master, to a new master. Christ has broken that enslaving power. So we press on, we press on to to greater faithfulness in Christ Jesus because we are empowered to do so by his spirit. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And in Christ, as I mentioned before, we're not our own. We don't get to attach Jesus as a pin to our jacket. We don't get to say, hey, Jesus, come along for my ride. I want you to be a part of this. Jesus will have first place or he will have no place. He is the preeminent one that does not fight against any other idolatry. Any other idols in your heart, Christ says, I won't fight i'm one i am number one so not only is there a here and now reality of belonging to the kingdom being uh, being circumcised in christ there's also a future end time component to this reality and we see this in chapter 3 verse 4 paul writes when christ who was your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory see if you want to go deeper in our affection and our knowledge of god we go deeper into Christ. He is an endless well that we will never reach the bottom of in this life. We're reminded of his second coming. You know, the day will come where we will no longer wrestle with pain, shame, death. A couple of days ago, we laid my father-in-law to rest, and it was, it was, hard. It was heartbreaking. It was sad, but I know that there's a day coming where death itself will be swallowed up. When Christ returns, because we are one with Him, when He returns in His glory, guess where you will be? With Him. With Him in His glory. But in this in-between time, this inaugurated kingdom, but not quite fully consummated yet, we live in this tension. We live in this tension. Jesus at the right hand of the Father is advocating for you. Hold fast. There's a couple of thoughts I have when. We're thinking about, okay, Mo, I may not ever come across anyone who may try to lead me astray by false gospel or false distortions. What about me? What do I do? One of the questions I have for you is, are you convinced that the finished work of Christ is sufficient for you? Right now, are you convinced that you have peace with God? Or do you look over your shoulder and always wondering, how does God feel about you? Do you tend to live in a hope that, okay, what I'm doing in my life, I hope that God will see what I'm doing and therefore accept me? I want to remind you of Paul's letter to the Colossians and us and to to magnify the reality of what Christ has accomplished, that we are accepted, that we are holy because of what Christ has done. You don't have to live a life looking over your shoulder thinking what God feels about you. Secondly, do you know that God cares for you? It's a new year, but if we're honest, 2020 and 2021 did it work on us. Some of us are very skeptical. What does this year look like? My pain, my suffering, is it just going to lag? Is it just going to continue? Some of you guys are on the brink of giving up. I want to remind you that God cares for you, that God sees you, God sees where you are. He is not indifferent to your pain, to your sorrow, to your suffering. You see, being a new creation, a new person and a new creation in Christ Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from the pains and the sorrows of life, but it does mean that God is with you in the midst of it. God is with you. And thirdly, man, open God's word this year, brothers and sisters. Open God's word and drink deeply from it. You know, Tim Keller once famously said, the gospel, it isn't the ABC to the Christian life. It's the A through the Z. We don't just let the gospel go because we became Christians. We sit on it and we marinate on it and we think on it because you are always being tempted to prove yourself and to justify yourself. The law tells you to do In Christ, God says, it's done. You know, we have amazing Bible studies here at Sojourn. Pennington mentioned the guys one. There's women's Bible studies as well. Man, get involved this year. Know God's word. The best way for you to stand firm on truth is to know truth. Know what the truth of the the word is, the truth of the gospel, so that when counterfeits come near to you, You can recognize it because it's not consistent and it doesn't stand in alignment with what God has done in Christ Jesus. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Why? Because in Christ, we have more than enough. Let me pray.
0: I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.